If you enjoy this podcast, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and visit our website at lifebetweenthevines.com. The teaching winemaker just pulled out a thief, rolled up a pallet of kegs, and, and just started, you know, pulling out samples and tasting us on it blind, asking us to identify the grape varietal. I had no idea how to respond to that because, mm. one, I had never been in a setting where you tasted wines blind. Two, the names of the varietals, I had never even heard of those things. Discovering and tasting wine shouldn't be a homework assignment. And we believe that the people who are closest to wine have the best stories. So open a bottle. And welcome to podcast number 543. This week we feature Priyanka French, winemaker at Signorello Estate, Napa Valley. Signorello Estate Winery was lost to the 2017 Atlas Peak Fire, but it is now on its way back later this year. We've talked with proprietor Ray Signorello many times over the years, but here we meet with his winemaker, Priyanka French. Priyanka's background is extensive, having worked in wine all over the globe as well as Napa Valley. This interview was recorded during Premier Napa Valley Week, where Priyanka was deeply involved with the auction. I find her last name ironic, so you need to hear her amazing story. You can also hear Priyanka on our Vino Lingo segment defining the term old ladies. I'm here with Priyanka French, and Priyanka is the winemaker for Signorella Vineyards. Some of our uh, followers would remember uh, when we talked to Ray Signorella many times over the years. How are you doing, Priyanka? Doing very well. Thanks for being here, Ray. I'm happy to be here, and thank you for taking the time today. We are fresh off of Premier Napa Valley, although this podcast will air quite a bit down the road afterwards. But um, you were kind of in the limelight yesterday. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you were the chair, correct? For this, for the 2023 auction, yes. Right. Yeah. So for this year, yeah. And then they kick you out and somebody else takes over next time. Yes. Yeah. But that's okay. That had to be kind of a daunting bit of a gig to do. Uh, how did that feel for you doing that? Um, you know, it was daunting, especially because I would say my experience with Premier has been a, a limited a little bit. This was only my third premiere that I was attending. The previous two had been, you know, as a vintner and kind of as a spectator the very first year because we just didn't have any wine to submit when it was the 2020 vintage that was being featured. Um, and so it, w it was exciting because I think it's, it is a very special week. You know, it's a week that brings into the Valley such amazing partners that we've had in the trade for nationally within the U.S., globally. So it's pretty exciting just to see the people that support and follow and feel passionately about Napa. Um, in terms of, like, getting up on the stage, I think I was ex I was honestly excited to do it because where we are with Signorello right now is just such a special moment. You know, this is a winery that's had a legacy and a history of being in Napa for over three decades at this point, but we still have something very exciting to share with everyone, like talk about where the story is right now, how the rebuild is going. So I, I was pretty excited to, to be able to communicate that during the week to everyone who was here. That's great. And then just to give a little bit of history for our listeners who don't know this, of course, uh, Ray Signorello lost his winery in the 2017 fire. And of course, other wineries have uh, gone down too in these fires, which mm -hmm. just goes to show how vulnerable you can be out here. Mm -hmm. But uh, yes, the good news, I've stayed in touch with Ray over the years to see this progress to getting it rebuilt. And as many people probably also know that nothing happens fast in Napa Valley. 
Uh, patience is very important virtue when you're in the wine industry. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, let's let's backpedal for a minute. I'm going to talk to you about your background in a minute, but when did you come on board with Signorella? Uh, 2019, so very early spring of 2019. Okay, and the plans for the uh, the new winery now, as Ray told me, if I'm not letting the cat out of the bag, you're looking at potentially October this year? We are, yeah. That's, that's the goal. Um, well, actually, the goal is to hopefully even finish it a little faster than that so that we can 100 percent do the 2023 harvest on site um i think in terms of the actual infrastructure and getting the building ready we might be able to you know really just slide right into that finish line it's really going to be about the county and if we can get that operating permit in time for us to actually physically be able to use the building um so fingers crossed you know that's the intention but i think what the light at the end of this tunnel is that we know for a fact that 2023 vintage you know ultimately will be made on site it will be bottled on site so we'll be able to kind of go back to that estate bottling estate grown um just here in the next few the next few months it's very exciting it's been a long journey to get here when we were told that we were fast-tracked you know we um lost the winery in 17 we started applying for permits in 18 and usually they said for you know because I think one thing that's important to mention is we weren't going to just get everything replaced. We did go and use this as an opportunity to really see how to position ourselves in the future. So there was a major modification permit, for example, that was submitted with expanded production, expanded hospitality use, which were not planning to you know max out anytime soon but you also get these opportunities with the count with the county just once mm. and it's becoming tougher and tougher every year to you know navigate through these loopholes so we said why not use this as a chance to really build for the future ray has two daughters that he hopes will take over so he just wanted to make sure he can give them something that allows them to then expand and put their ideas on the board as well so that's kind of why it took a little bit more of a time but then I think it would have been faster had we not had the pandemic and then the next set of 2020 fires. So we definitely did not anticipate two, you know, multiple additional hurdles coming our way, uh, which was unfortunate. But um, hindsight, I guess, 2020. In the words of Monty Python, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and God knows you guys have had more than your share to deal with. For you personally, uh, where are you from originally? I'm born and raised in Mumbai, India. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And uh, how long have you been in the States? Have you been living here? Um, well, so I first moved in 2009 to do my master's at UC Davis. So I was here in the country from 9 to, gosh, 2011. Uh, finished my master's and, you know, wanted to go to the birthplace of wine so I traveled to Europe and kind of did the traveling hemispheres hop around try to get as much experience and then ended up back in the US in 2013 and I've been here now full time since 2014 excellent yeah. you're very young yes <laughs> and and that's certainly not a negative it's a very strong positive but I want to ask you this I'm sure you're aware of the fact that uh, younger people, generally speaking, aren't buying wines as much as they were at one time. It's true. Uh, because you can relate to it far better than me. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what do you think that's all about? Well, I think, you know, one of the biggest reasons is just options. There's so many more options when it comes to not just alcohol, just the beverage 
industry overall, you know, like think of the development we've seen just in the category of beers or in the category of, you know, hard spirits. But now you have all these mixed beverages that you can just pop a can and you've ready cocktail ready to go, you know. So (laughs) I think I think one of the reasons why we're seeing this loss of consumerism, if you will, is because there's just so many more options presented to the average younger consumer that's starting their drinking journey. But I also feel like a lot of it comes to how consumers perceive where they want to spend. And there's that there's a little bit more of that conscious consumerism where they want to spend the money to support brands that they believe in, support things they believe in. And so that's why I feel, you know, winemaking's always had this shroud of mystery around it, which has kind of been for some the allure, but for some the intimidation about sure. getting into it. And so the more we tell the stories, the more we talk about where this wine's coming from, how are we farming it, who are the people making it, what's the philosophy behind it. I find that that's by far the most attractive way to get these younger consumers to drink wine. Good point. Well said, yes. And and that's, uh, I think, part of it, too, for me, is maybe that may come with a bit more maturity as time goes on where they get the chance to discover wine and go, hey, this is pretty cool. Well, it's true. I mean, your style and why you want to drink changes over the years, too. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, (laughs) all of us have gone through the, you know, I'm young, I'm going to party, I'm going to be out with my friends. And then after some time, you're like, no, I'm going to drink two drinks a week and I really want to enjoy what I drink. And, And then you're, you know, you kind of move into that, um, I want to be a collector. I want to like know what products I have. I want to invest in these people. And sure. So I think that that graph just happens naturally yeah. as you progress along. Yeah. And for anybody out there listening, if you want to be a collector, I'll be your friend. Just yeah. let me know. <laughs> me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That's, I think that's one of the myths of winemakers is that you guys are sitting at home with a 700, 800 no. bottle seller and it's anything, you know, maybe owners might be that way in some cases. Yeah. But that's definitely a, a huge myth. Uh, it is a myth, but I, I have to say we're, you know, fortunate, I think, in the sense that whenever, you know, even if you have friends coming over, everyone's always bringing a bottle of wine. Sure. And so in terms of the range of wines you get, to taste and experience we're definitely a lot more fortunate than the average consumer you know like we just the the day that premiere officially launched was wednesday so on tuesday night we did a little dinner at our house got together some of our friends that are in the trade some friends that were visiting um you know from other countries that are also in the industry and it was just 10 of us but because everyone's in the industry, we ended up with close to 20 bottles. Oh, that's not, a good way to start your cellar off. Right. Yeah. I'm not saying that we consumed it all, but, you know, it's just it's that access, which is which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. And in the end, there's nothing better than sharing your wine with friends. Absolutely. Right. So let's talk about your personal journey, uh, especially because you're young and, and getting a gig like this because Ray's been around for such a long time and so well known. Did you have the wine moment? Were you bitten by the bug at one point? Were you raised in your family drinking wine? How did that start for you? Uh, No, absolutely no connection with drinking wine. Um, My father has always been someone that's enjoyed scotch and whiskey, and that's, you know, in general... India, as as a beverage consumer, has always kind of leaned towards, it's been a beer-drinking community, it's been spirits and, you know, like rums, gins, but mainly whiskeys and scotches. And so um, 
those were the beverages I, I think I was aware of, but my background was in food engineering and technology, which was a relatively new subject in India at the time when I decided to pursue it for my undergrad. And the reason that I decided to pursue it was I just liked the subjects that were associated with it. I didn't, if there was one thing I was clear about, it was that I didn't want to be the stereotype. Like I didn't want to be the doctor or the engineer or the lawyer. I really wanted to do something that was a little bit more application-based. And so with food chemistry, the subjects of like biochemistry and microbiology had this really interesting cross-science aspect to it, and they were all application-based things. And so that's what I started to you know, pursue my career in, and winemaking came as a subset of that. So my initial experiences in the food industry was I worked with chocolate manufacturing. So I was in the Nest, one of the Nestle production facilities in India that made like Kit Kat and a couple of other. What a horrible gig. I feel so bad. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, it, it was it was wonderful. But then after three and a half months of being in quality control, I stepped on the scale and I was like, this is not a, <laughs> a long term life the charm decision. Off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I still can't eat Kit Kat to this day. You I'm know, not surprised. Because I've, I've eaten so much of it. <laughs> uh, I still think it's a fantastic product. I just, I've had my full. And then after that, I did uh, food retail, like product development, which was very exciting. So we have in India kind of, it's called Food Bazaar, which is its own retail chain, like Safeways, you know, or sure. Trader Joe's. And so my job was to be on the product development side to develop our in-house products. And that was exciting, right? Because you got to be creative. You got to put something new on the shelf. But the products that you were asked to spend time working on were decided based on marketing data. Mm. So they said, you know, if they said ketchup is selling really hot right now, we need our own version of ketchup, then you that's what you worked on. Mm. But it was it was a it was an aspect that allowed creativity and winemaking kind of came out of that. So we would do a lot of field trips and um you know, discover food and beverage. Like there was a lot of big multinationals that were starting to invest in India and, you know, put up production. So it was a really exciting time to be in it. And we visited um, Sula Vineyards, which is one of the bigger wineries in India at the moment. And it was just a wonderful day. You know, it happened to be harvest. Everything smelled good. Everything mm. was clean, which yeah. was important. Um, and then at the end of the whole tour where we talked about not just the science of winemaking, but the challenges of each vintage and, you know, philosophy and the creative expression, all of that stuff. We ended up in the tasting room that overlooked the lake on their property and, you know, the sun was setting, we're tasting some wine and, I mean, you know, it was pretty romantic. So. It's the whole experience. So that, yeah, that was yeah. kind of my, like, how do you how do you get into this yeah. kind of moment? And from there on, I just started reading as much as I could, you know, any access to magazines or literature that I could find. And my uncle um, was in the food hotel industry. And so he had a lot of exposure to the international scene and especially to the wine scene and, and how it was growing. Um, and so he was very supportive. He was the one who kind of pushed me to the point where I said, okay, I'm going to try and do That's this. That's nice. That's yeah. really nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to have somebody like that because depending on what your age was, and I'm not going to ask, of course, it's a... <laughs> you're not always sure and to have that little bit of a you know yeah you can do this this is yours 
Well, you know, it's age definitely because you know you're young, you're trying to figure it out. But it was also the the stigma associated with being in the alcohol industry. India is a relatively conservative country, and so for a girl to just go up to her parents that are both in academics and have you know assumed she would have a similar career that was a that was a f- fun conversation now <laughs> in retrospect and so to have someone like him kind of stand up and say this is the future of the industry this is what she can do this is where she could head it it was it was nice it was nice to have that support i don't i don't think had i not had that i i am doubtful if i would still be in the industry that's great yeah. that's uh could be a, a big challenge of course it's happened more than once in the industry whether it be a religious thing or whether it be mm-hmm. a, a just a general conservative thing going into alcohol is definitely a a major step in life mm-hmm. and that may not always rub everybody the right way yep. yeah. yeah so when you made this move towards wine what was that particular path like i mean you get this encouragement to go and do this how did you do this well, so I started with, you know, my, my parents had a very um, clear approach. They said, if you're going to do something, you have to do it well. Yeah. And you have to do it with education being the cornerstone behind how you approach it. So it wasn't, you know, okay, fine, just go get an internship and see what it's about. It was really... Like, learn your subject material before you go out there. And so I started applying to different colleges, um, applied to the University of Adelaide in Australia, applied to uh, two of the schools in Bordeaux, you know, applied to the University of Dijon in Burgundy, and then, of course, applied to UC Davis, because why wouldn't you apply to UC Davis for viticulture and enology? And I was fortunate that I got accepted. So I moved in 2009 to do my master's at Davis. And so I was in the school from 2009 to 11. And that was probably, I mean, that is the most defining formative experience for me because I was surrounded by some amazing, prof- you know, that people that are now professionals in the industry. Some sure. of them had already had a career and had come back to school to study. So we had such a great mix of students that were new, like me, that had really no background, and students that had worked and you know knew their way around a winery and were kind of like guiding forces. And of course, just the caliber of professors that you have at Davis is very well known. You know, sure. it needs very little introduction. So. I found myself in very good company, people that, you know, we had tasting groups and we would do all kinds of the small things that slowly add up to experiences. People, a lot of my colleagues that had worked at wineries would talk about what kind of wineries to work at, like really how to hmm. think about shaping your career. So it was it, it was a defining, defining moment for me. Had you been to the States before that? Uh, when I was very young, as a child, my father is a research scientist, so he collaborated with the University of Ames in Iowa, and so I spent a few of my years, but I was very young. I only sure. remember most of that through pictures. Well, what I'm thinking of is, is the cultural difference, the communication difference and all that. When you came here and going to school, where obviously school's all about communication, mm-hmm. was that a great challenge for you, or was that something you fell into, you know, was English an issue for you? I mean, how did that go? Well, not really, because a lot of most of my schooling was in English, yeah. so I was pretty comfortable, and that was one of the bigger reasons for applying to Davis. You know, was that language would not be a significant issue. Going to France, that would have been an issue. I would have had to learn a language and a science at the same time, sure, which yeah. is tough. Um, I would say the biggest cultural or the biggest challenge was just being away from home. Yes, and learning 
to do it on your own. You know, like I remember the first few weeks, everything was good. You'd go to school, you'd come back, you know, you'd do your thing. We, a few of us were renting an apartment together, so it was a good atmosphere at home. And then suddenly I remember one day going, I have no clothes to wear because I didn't think about the fact that I have to do my own laundry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet you your parents laughed at that oh, one. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there were there were personal wake-up calls like that. Sure. And yeah. uh, in terms of winemaking, my biggest challenge was the language of wine. It really wasn't the science because I think with the food engineering background I had, my chemistry was much stronger than most of the people on the in the class, as well as the engineering part of things, because I'd already studied a lot of it. And so I felt like from a science point of view, and this is actually, so the very first day when we had our orientation at Davis, they take you for a full tour of the facility. So you go to Wixon Hall, which was the original winery, and now it's the new Jackson Center for winemaking, the brand new facility. And, uh, and then they take you to the teaching vineyards. You know, they basically show you like your classrooms, where you're at. Sure. But at the end of the day, we ended up at Wixon and Chick, who was our teaching, the teaching winemaker, just pulled out a thief, rolled up a pallet of kegs and, and just started, you know, pulling out samples and tasting on us on it blind, asking us to identify the grape varietal. And I was, I had no idea how to respond to that because mm. one, I had never been in a setting where you tasted wines blind. Two, the names of the varietals, you know, my my classmates were, were saying, I had never even heard of those things. <laughs> I knew Cabernet, I knew Shiraz. I didn't even know Shiraz versus Syrah at that point in time. Sure. I, I knew like Chenin Blanc, I don't know, like two or three more, which were the wines you found in India, basically. And so I was so intimidated that I went home. I kind of sunk more and more into the corner, that whole experience, because I was like, what have I gotten myself into? And I went back to the apartment, and I said to my roommate, I was like, I don't, I think I made a mistake. I think I need to, like, transfer back into food or something. And she was, she kind of calmed me down, and she said, you know, you've taken a big step. You've invested time. You've now traveled across the seas to be here. Just give yourself a month. And if after a month you still feel like this is out of your zone, that's okay. You try to transfer your credit, see where you can go. And so I said, okay, fine, that makes sense. And so the next Monday, which was our first day of classes, we started with wine chemistry, which was Professor Sue Ebler. And she's talking about molarity and molality and atomic numbers and molecular weights and all of this stuff. And I can see the expression that I had at the winery on Friday on my classmates, whereas I was like... I know all of this. <laughs> you know, I was just wait, like waiting for her to get to a point where I'd be learning because I'd already learned all of that stuff. And I think that's when I realized that there was still hope. Um, and so I found you know, some of my best friends, even to this day, are my classmates when, from our time in that's at great. Davis. And we learned to like, like learn from each other's strengths. And so I would sit down and do the chemistry part, and, and they would talk to me about regions and varieties and flavors. There were so many descriptors that I was completely unfamiliar with. I didn't know what huckleberry was or blueberry. or sure. like Just the berries were like, are you kidding me? Like, how many berries do you guys have? And so the vocabulary was difficult for me, but, you know, it was exciting because that's an adventure too. It's like a gastronomic experience learning about 
this whole vocabulary of wine. So it was slow learning, but it was fun the whole sure. way through. Kind of takes you back to food. Absolutely. And, you know, it's yeah. interesting. You, you said your dad was a research scientist. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a little curiosity for me, backpedaling to your experience visiting an Indian winery. Is it one of these things where everybody does pretty much the same kind of thing sort of partially, or was it radically different from what you're seeing today as an experienced winemaker? Uh, A little bit of both. You know, India is a tropical viticulture zone, which means that the vines never go dormant like they do here in the wintertime. Really? Hmm. So you end up having two harvests, basically, because the vines are just always producing. And so in India, they define one as a wine harvest, where they do a little bit more focus in terms of viticulture and crop yields and, you know, crop amount... um, weights uh, to bring in quality and then on the second side of the harvest they kind of focus on volume and use it more for spirits like brandy like Mm. brandy making so there is a little bit of a difference in terms of um, how that approach happens I mean the basic chemistry and the basic steps of winemaking still remain the same right like you still have to convert the sugar into alcohol you're still going to have a primary fermentation then you have the choice of your secondary aging things like that so that basic process of course continues to remain the same it's those smaller decisions that help you define either varietal characteristic or the region's typicity that is different obviously you finish school and you begin this road to becoming a winemaker did you go through the cellar rat process uh, analogy you know gigs uh, where did you go after school oh cellar rat to the core you know that was that was something i think i decided from the very beginning um even though my master's was viticulture and enology, I knew enology was what I wanted to do. Viticulture actually came in as a love years after when I found my first full-time position. So I said, okay, I'm going to be in the cellar. I actually worked at Louis Martini while I was doing my master's project. So that was my very first harvest experience, but it also coincided with my master's project. So I was doing a little bit of both. And then from there, I went to Burgundy and worked at Hospice de Bone, which completely for me defined single vineyard expression and single vineyard winemaking because that's really what Burgundy is about. You know, they talk about the what the site gives you and that site could be less than 50 feet away from the next site, but they're still very much able to define once again what that site does. So that was, that was a really... Um, uh, important experience for me and that you know got to go live in burgundy yeah what an awful thing again yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was that was between great. that and kit kats i mean gosh yeah it's been a tough life <laughs> <laughs> yes it has and then from there i went to cognac because i just oh, wanted really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i keep going down <laughs> i just wanted the chance to stay in france longer and sure. cognac's just an hour from bordeaux and and so it was fun because now I was again doing winemaking, but winemaking for distilled spirits, which is a completely different ball game. And while I was there, it was the time for blending of cognac, which is again a completely different idea for blending from wine. When you blend for wine, you're going for a style or um, a philosophy or a vintage aspect. But when you blend for cognac, you're just going for consistency, right? You want that product to taste the same every year that you release, unless you're doing a vintage-specific bottling. So that was different, but it gave me a chance to pop into Bordeaux on the weekends and learn more about, you know, that side of France and about winemaking there. So that was exciting. And then from there, I went to New Zealand um, 
and worked at St. Clair Family Estate. And that was different because now you're looking at volume. You know, we were doing, we were bringing in 150 tons of Sauvignon Blanc on one specific day. So it was a completely different aspect of winemaking. And then from there, I, I went to India and I worked in India for about a year. I was working for a barrel company called Tonellerie Gemtos, which um, was interested in opening up their market in India and talking to the Indian consumer about oak and oak alternative mm -hmm. products. And I thought it was a good opportunity for me to learn about the market and see how I could position myself there. And so I did that for a year and established a market for them and not just wines, but also from the spirit side of things. And, and it was interesting because it really gave me a chance to understand where India was, what the regions were, you know, what the player, who the players were, how they were moving. But I was in, an, in, a, in a phase where I felt like I was too young to be a, you know, take a full-time position as a winemaker or a consultant, but I was too far ahead in terms of winemaking just based on the experiences I'd already had. Mm -hmm. So it was a weird kind of catch-22 sure. almost. to like be a crossroad. Yeah, and so I said, okay, why don't I just go do get a little bit more experience, and that way when I come back, I can affirmatively take on a better role at whichever winery I apply to. And so I did that. I was, was to go to Australia. They got hit by hail that year, so I went to New Zealand and then ended up back in Napa, um, mainly because I met my now husband in New Zealand who convinced me that you know it might be worth it to, to explore one more harvest in the United States and all of my friends were here in Napa you know I had a good group of people that I could lean on so I came here and worked at Stag's Leap Winery and stayed with them for about nine months where I worked as an intern but also kind of because I was kept long term I got to do a lot of the post-harvest stuff mm -hmm. which was great and then from there I got my first full-time job at Dalla Valley Vineyards so I joined them in 2014. I'm kind of speechless. I mean, that's a that's a road. <laughs> that's that's a, road. a beautiful yeah. <laughs> road. You're very lucky, but obviously your skills proved you out to be, you know, what you were to become, and that is a winemaker. Uh, just curious, was your husband from New Zealand? No, born and raised in Seattle. Oh, of course. Yeah. What was I thinking? Yeah. <laughs> is he in the wine business as well? He is, but he's on the sales side. Okay. And he's the reason why I'm an Indian in America, but with last name French. So way, oh. way to put a spin on how cosmopolitan how global we can be I guess but yeah he we worked at the same winery in New Zealand together and um, he transitioned into sales so he's been doing sales in Napa ever since that's great yeah I'm gonna have to cut off here in a little while just because of time but I could ask you a lot more questions you're <laughs> fascinating to talk to I like your your clearness you have a, a definite line in your head what you were looking to do do you do media very often interviews anything like that I mean having done been chair for PNV I imagine you had a certain exposure to that, but beyond that as well. Well, yes, uh, you know, since I've come in to Cinerello, we've we've had a little, little bit of exposure, and uh, it's been to kind of get the word out of what we're doing and this very interesting point in the history of Cinerello that we're at right now. And there's been fascinating stories to tell. You know, we've kind of almost brought 
in a way, the second look to the property because sure. when we came on, a lot of the historic data had been lost, unfortunately, in the fires. Pierre, who was the winemaker before me, was an extremely talented winemaker, but, you know, sixth-generation Corsican, so a lot of his information was in his head mm. that I slowly extracted <laughs> <laughs> over the time that we both worked together. And a lot of it was with Ray because Ray's been... You know, he's been with the wineries since day one. He's, you know, worked as a salesperson, a seller guy, and, you know, now, of course, a little bit more removed than that, but he's still very much involved in the day-to-day of, of this winery. And so um, it was interesting because a lot of the things, like we brought Steve Mathiasen in to be our consulting viticulturalist because the age of the vineyards in, at Senorello is something that's very special to me and something I'd like to preserve. And Celia Welch joined in as consulting winemaker because we're, there are so many different things happening at Senorello right now mm-hmm. that, you know, I said to Ray, I said, we don't want to look back after it's all done and wish we had thought of something. Sure, yeah. And so to have these two legends, you know, Steve is a viticulturalist, but he's also a winemaker. He's the owner of a brand. He has successfully, you know, run and talked about Matthias and wines. Celia is an absolutely legendary winemaker in her own right, but she also has her own brand. She also does a lot of vineyard-related work in terms of, you know, where her fruit's coming from. So the conversations with these two legends is just so wholesome and what we need at Senorello right now. And so because there are these amazing things that are happening Yes, I've been I've been speaking to media people about it. Well, the reason I ask that question for the time you've done these uh, these events for media and otherwise, what's the one question that you've never been asked that you would like to be asked? Wow, that's a good one. What's the one question that you've never been asked that you would like to be asked? Um, I think uh, about. And this is, it's interesting for me because, you know, when you sit down with media, sometimes you taste them on wines and you're always tasting them on the wines that are your current release. But by the time you're sitting down and tasting them on that, you personally are three vintages ahead. Mm. You've already finished that vintage. The second one's ready to go into the bottle. And usually you're close to starting on on the third vintage or you've already started and it's kind of in that like formative period. And so I think that's the question I'd love to be asked is, what do you think of these wines three years later? Because by the time I'm tasting those, I'm already thinking about what I would have done differently or what I am doing differently based sure. on what we saw. And that's something people are not, I've never been asked that question. Yeah, we'd have to do that obviously with yeah. wines. <laughs> but I've always said winemakers, you're, you're kind of, crazy in that you're living in the past, <laughs> living in the present, living in the future. Not too many occupations can say that. All at the same time. At the same and time. And trying to define time with what we put in a bottle, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. <laughs> As I said, I would like to come back and talk to you a little bit more because I think there's a lot more depth we can go into, but yeah, we're just running course. a little short of time. For our listeners who would like to learn a little bit more about you as well as Signorello Vineyards, what is your website? Um, so we're www.signorelloestate.com. And that's the best place to get all of this information. We're also, we have a Twitter account, we have Instagram, kind of the same Cinderella estate. And so probably the best ways to follow our journey would be those outlets. Great. And hopefully later this year, people can come visit in person. Yes. Well, you can still come visit. Well, yes, there's that. I'm sorry. Um, we have the fanciest trailer <laughs> west of the Mississippi. <laughs> it's actually quite incredible. 
um, and you get to be a part of the construction process. A lot of our allocation members that have been so amazing to support our brand through the years and then through this rebuild period love coming back because they just feel like they're involved with the story and every time they come, you know, the place looks a little more different. So you're still able to come visit us if you if you are okay to experience a slightly different version of what the experience would be. I like to think authentic. Authentic is good. (laughs) That's a a key word for a lot of people. (laughs) Priyanka, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Ray. Learn more by visiting SeniorelloEstate.com. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the podcast at LifeBetweenTheVines.com or sign up to our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Life Between the Vines comes to you from Fifth Floor Recording Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Produced and edited by Ray Fister. Our host is Kay Paskoff. Our web geek is Dan Gisha. Original music by Ray Fister. Copyright 2023.